It's great to be together in here with all of you. And we do recognize we got a lot of folks worshiping online right now. So welcome to all of you online joining us. We're glad to be together. I'm thankful to be here with you. Hey, do this, pull your Bible out and open with me to book of Romans chapter one. Here's what's happening. Today, as you most likely know, we are going to deal with what is arguably the most difficult and delicate two verses in the entire book of Romans. All right. Verses 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 1, which I will get to by the end of this sermon, deal with some of the most delicate things in our culture. Paul's going to say some things about human sexuality, and in particular, he's going to address homosexuality. And what I want you to know is that we don't always dive into such delicate or controversial things. So if you're a visitor or a guest, welcome to River West. We don't go out of our way to lean into the most controversial things. We just preach through the verses of the Bible, verse by verse, and we address things as we come to them with as much humility, precision, and truthfulness as we possibly can, which is what I'm going to do this morning. However, that does mean that I'm going to be talking, and near the end of my sermon, I'm going to be talking about some, some explicit things in order, to, in order to explain Paul's logic. I will need to talk explicitly about some things related to sexuality. And so parents, I don't see a ton of parents with kids, but if you have your kids in here and you'd prefer that they not be a part of this, um, there's opportunities where you can slip out. Um, a couple years ago when I, I taught on sex, I made that same disclaimer. And one mom walked out of the sanctuary, went down, got her kids out of children's ministry and brought them into the sanctuary and said, pay attention because pastor's saving me an awkward conversation. So you might choose to do that as well. <clears throat> there are some people who would suggest that I rush through this and get it over with as quickly as possible. But as I've prayed about this and as I've, I've talked to the leadership of our church, we made a conscious decision to slow down, actually. We're going to do just the opposite. We're going to slow down. Because the things that we're going to talk about over the next few Sundays cannot be communicated in sound bites. I'm sorry, there's no way around it. As much as our world wants to make statements about difficult topics through sound bites, the most complicated things require integrity, precision, logic, and thoughtfulness. And so there are times when, even when it's difficult, even when it's delicate, even when it's uncomfortable, we should slow down and take our time. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. I want to start by saying that Paul, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is not just waxing eloquent about high-minded philosophical ideas. He's not engaging in a theoretical, theological conversation. Paul has a goal to unite Christians around the power of the gospel to level the playing field by arguing that the world is desperately sick 
And we need a cure that we can never conjure up on our own. We need a gift from God, a gift of righteousness that we could never earn, never accomplish. And Paul says the reason that gift is so profound is because of how deeply broken the world is. And I argue last Sunday, if you come to understand Paul's argument in Romans 1, you will become a sage. You will become a person who's wise to the ways of this world, to the ways of the human heart. You'll be able to discern things that are happening in our world and why. You'll be able to discern things that are happening in your own heart and the hearts of your neighbor. And what Paul does is he begins his argument. Remember in verse 18, he says, the reason that God would pour out wrath is not because God is a vengeful, mean, angry, emotional, irrational God, but because the entire human species has turned our backs on him. Paul says, in ungodliness and unrighteousness, we suppress the obvious truth about God. You remember this last Sunday? And I use the analogy of a beach ball. The, the truth about God is being universally revealed. It's, it's available to everyone. Paul says, everyone knows that there is a God, but because we don't want to acknowledge that God, we hold that truth down. We know. We look around and we know there is a God, but that knowledge is very inconvenient. And so in unrighteousness, we suppress it and hold it down. And Paul says, this is the explanation for so many things that you witness in our world, including the fact that tragically the human race spins into this condition of refusing to honor God or glorify God or worship God. And what we're going to realize this morning, there's going to be three steps, three building blocks in the argument. Paul is now going to explain how that works. What does that actually look like? And what I'm, everything I'm going to say this morning is going to fall under one sentence, which I'm going to give you right down now. I'll ask you to write this down. This is like my headline for my entire sermon. And the headline is this. Human rejection of God begins and ends with worship. Begins and ends with worship. What we're talking about is a worship problem. It's about how we worship. It's about who we, or more, more, more significantly, it's about what we worship. So in order to understand what I'm about to read, you gotta realize that the human rejection of God, listen to what I'm about to say to you, the human rejection of God does not create non-religious people. Humans are incurably religious. We will worship something. The question is, what will we worship? Who will we worship? Romans 1, verse 21, Paul says, for although they knew God, this goes back to last week, everyone we know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't wanna know. Although they knew God, everyone knows God, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and listened to this language. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals 
and creeping things. So note well, this text is about an exchange that humans make. Now, this is Paul's description of humanity in general. It's a a description of the human species, the human race outside of Christ. What do we naturally do before Christ, before the gospel? The human race sees the glory of God clearly displayed and makes a decision to exchange that glory for something else. An image, Paul says. You see that? We make an exchange. We take the glory, the real thing, the pure gold thing of God's glory. And because we don't want to acknowledge that and we're suppressing that truth, we exchange it for a substitute, a cheap substitute, a a knockoff, a copy. That's the concern. That's the root of human sin. It's an exchange. Paul, Paul, that word exchange, Paul's taking a word from the Greek marketplace where you would trade in the Greek marketplaces. You'd make trades. You'd come in with something you had and you would try to trade it with a vendor, usually for something of equal value. When I was a little boy, my twin brother and I would invite all the neighborhood boys in our neighborhood and every Saturday we'd gather in my family room and we would have an epic baseball card exchange session, okay? So baseball cards, I was really into baseball cards. I have quite a collection of baseball cards. When I left for college, I sat my mother down at the kitchen table because I'd heard horror stories of mothers throwing away their son's baseball card collections. I sat her down, I said, Mom, look at the whites of my eyes. Do not sell my baseball cards, okay? (laughs) She said, okay, I won't. I had spent many years collecting and trading and bartering, and I was there in my family room with all of my friends. I had a friend named John Sullivan who was a swindler already. This was like the most likely kid to own a pawn shop someday. John Sullivan, he was always trying to cheat me out of something. And I was opening a packet of baseball cards. We would buy fresh packets with bubble gum and we'd open them up. And I started flipping through and I came across a rookie year Roger Clemens baseball card. You're like, I don't even care. What are you talking about? Roger Clemens, arguably the greatest Boston Red Sox pitcher of all time. Eric, am I right about that? Is that relatively accurate? It doesn't matter. The point is, what makes a baseball card valuable is usually when it's rare. And people often would throw away rookie cards because they had no idea how that player would turn out. Roger Clemens turned out to be one of the greatest pitchers of all time. I had in my possession a mint can, I have it right here. You take, you take rookie cards and you put them in plastic. I don't know how much this is worth, maybe a couple thousand dollars. My friend John Sullivan saw that card from across the room and he said, I will trade you my Raleigh Fingers 15-year baseball card. There was a player named Raleigh Fingers. If you remember one thing about this sermon, don't remember Raleigh Fingers. He tried to, he tried to swindle me, right? He tried to get me to take something that was going to be valuable, and trade it for something worthless. And Paul says, yeah, but you know what? That's that's what the human race has done. And then Paul gets more explicit. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, look at this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So two exchanges. We exchange the glory of God for images, copies, pathetic substitutes. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And instead of worshiping what, who, what is obviously the creator of the universe, we worship some element of creation. We exchange, listen to this, what we do because we're holding down the, be- the, the, the beach ball we're suppressing truth. What we do in order to do that is we exchange the object of our worship into something that we can control. That's the human nature. It's the heart of sin. I don't want to acknowledge there's a sovereign God. I don't want to acknowledge there's a God who is truly my creator, who I'm responsible to. I don't want my life to revolve around him. I want things to revolve around me. And so what I do is I make an exchange and I create something that I can worship, something that's far less valuable, but the point is it's something I ultimately control. I continue to be spiritual because we're inherently spiritual. I continue to be a worshiper, but now... In a beautiful sense, I can worship and remain God at the same time. Idolatry has been an ingredient in every culture and every age. Pick up any book by any anthropologist and what you'll find is that people are constantly worshiping idols. It's just, it's just human nature. You say, well, we Westerners are so much more sophisticated. We don't worship idols anymore. We don't create calves out of gold or something. Oh, friends, let's not kid ourselves. Americans, we have got the corner on the market of idols. Do you hear me? We have created an idol out of every possible thing you can imagine. I'll tell you more about that. But there's one thing that all those idols, whether it's a golden calf or something in a temple in, a, in another country or an, or, a, or an object in your life that you elevate to the most important thing, there's one thing that all of those idols have in common, and it's this, they exist to serve me, not the other way around. I wanna be spiritual. I wanna make a connection with something transcendent. Why? Because I'm a human being, and we all do. But never at the expense of my place as the center of the universe. Now just think of the explanatory power of this. Remember, we're becoming sages. We're becoming Christians who understand our world. Think of the explanatory power. Think of the number of religions that this explains. Think of the inherent spirituality you notice in people. The point is we get to call the shots. We decide what's right and wrong. If there's a God, we're totally okay with him as long as... He revolves around us and not the other way around. I once heard a pastor say there's irreligious and religious suppression. So the religious suppression would be what I'm talking about today, the exchange, idolatry, and the irreligious suppression would be atheism or agnosticism. And what I would argue is Paul is saying those two things are the same. There are, there are genuinely people who, who are atheists and some of the people that I know and love and respect the most are atheists 
And I'm not saying that they, I'm, what I'm saying about atheism is they, they genuinely do believe they believe there's no God. But what's happening there is what's motivating that is a subconscious desire to not have to serve God. And that does not mean they become non-religious. Everyone worships something. Everyone builds their life around something. Tim Keller says we are telic creatures. From the Greek word telos, it means we're purposed people. We have to have something that our life serves as a purpose. He writes, we have to live for something. There has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance. Something that's the resting place of our deepest hopes. Something we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is. It could be money, it could be prestige, it could be popularity, it could be success at work, it could be my reputation in my neighborhood, it could be the way my body looks, it could be romance, it could be sex. By the way, I'll argue in a moment, the reason Paul talks about sex in the first place is because if there's one thing that humans turn into an idol, it's sex. But romance, think about the kinds of things we sing about in our love songs. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. You bring feeling to my life. That is idolatry, folks. Straight out of the 80s Chicago playbook, all right? Okay? I could quote the lyric of every Justin Bieber song, and what you will hear is straight up, idolatry of romance. Am I right? Young people, Taylor Swift, you name it. The police, every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, I'll be watching you. That is creepy, friends. (laughs) That's straight up stalker, creepy idolatry, okay? And don't think, don't say to me, yeah, that's why I listen to country music because there's no idolatry. Name a genre, and I'll quote a lyric that's idolatrous, all right? We can make an idol out of everything. And here's the point. I'm talking about a heart thing, but what you're going to notice is that the mind immediately follows the heart. So this is a heart thing. It's a worship thing. But Paul makes a very explicit connection between what my heart longs to worship and what my mind is willing to sacrifice in the process. I'm going to put up three statements that I think capture everything Paul says about idolatry in the mind. And you've already seen these. So every time I preach, if you can't see in your own Bible what I'm talking about, we have problems. I want you to see in your Bible what I'm saying. Here's what Paul says about idolatry in the mind. Darkness is considered enlightened. Now think, this is a description. This is a, this is a description of our world, folks. Darkness is considered enlightened. Folly is considered wisdom. Lies are considered to be truth. They became futile in their thinking, verse 21, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkness is considered enlightened. There's like this internal dampening of the cognitive faculties that happens. Have you ever wondered, think about this, have you ever asked the question, why did God give us brains in the first place? What is the purpose of your brain? Okay, 
By the way, if you were like me and you were educated, I was educated in Oregon and then I was educated at Willamette University and I was taught that there are evolutionary explanations for our brains. Did you know that that actually is basically completely refuted today by all scholars, atheists especially, are recognizing that evolution, Darwinian evolution does not have the explanatory power for our mind. There's no way. It's impossible. We need a different explanation. And the explanation, of course, is your mind. Your, think about the human capacity for reason to think rationally, to make observations about the created universe and take all of those observations and bring them together and synthesize them into meaning, that is something that no other animal on the planet has the capacity to do. And it is a part of who you are as someone created in the image of God. And the question is, why would God give you the ability to do that? And the answer is so that you can think correct thoughts about him. So that you can connect to God and think rightly about God and observe creation and read scripture and listen to revelation about who he is and take that revelation and say, this makes sense. And, it, and Christianity makes sense. And you use your brain to connect with God. And Paul says, one of the very first things that's sacrificed in the process of holding a beach ball underwater, I know, but I don't want to know. So I kind of don't know. What happens is your brain begins to follow your heart. And darkness is sometimes considered light. But also folly, foolishness, is considered wise. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they exchanged the glory of God. And this was, Paul says, this is an example of foolishness. The exchange is always, in our world, when you reject the true God and you create a substitute and you worship it. The amazing thing is in our world, that's always considered to be very wise. It's, it's very inventive and creative and you're, you're, very, you're autonomous, you're self-determining, you don't need anybody else, you know how to make your way in the world. It, it makes sense that in the world's economy, that would be considered extremely wise. And by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, this is an echo of Eden. Remember what Satan said to Eve in the garden? Genesis 3, I think I have this. God knows that when you eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight in her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, do you remember this? She took of it and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. From the very beginning, it has seemed wise to be independent of God from day one. But in order to do it, you have to make an exchange. You have to give up something infinitely valuable. You have to trade Roger Clemens for Raleigh fingers. You got to take something that's obviously so infinitely valuable and trade it for a knockoff. 
And so, although it, to the world it looks wise, Paul's saying, think, there's actually like a, a, a serious foolishness to this. Picture a soldier who has, he's on his tour of duty and he takes with him a photo of his wife. And he tapes that to the, the cockpit of his jet or wherever he might be as he's serving. And he has that picture and, and it's this reminder of this relationship in his life that he cherishes. Maybe he even will pull it out at night and he'll cry and he'll think of fond things and maybe he'll even talk to the photo like, babe, I promise you I'm gonna make it home. No matter what the cost, I'm gonna make it home. Now imagine that soldier comes home and he's actually in his bedroom with his wife and he rolls over and he grabs the photo. Babe, I love you so much. He would have traded what's obviously the true deal for the, the image. Paul says, that's what we're talking about here. So follies considered to be wise, but also lies are considered to be true. Paul says, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. In order to hold the beach ball underwater, you have to continually assert that something's true that you know is not true. And that's happening all the time. Imagine someone came in this morning and they sat down next to you and they said, I don't believe in oxygen. Okay. By the way, this is not my argument. This comes from an extremely brilliant philosopher named Greg Bonson, who he died young. So he never was able to write a lot. A lot of Christians don't know him. He was probably the most brilliant Christian philosopher maybe ever. And he used this in a debate. He said, imagine somebody came in and they said, I just want you to know that I do not believe in air, okay? I don't believe oxygen exists. What Bonson said is, what that person doesn't realize is that they actually are using oxygen in order to deny it. <gasps> I don't believe in oxygen, okay? <gasps> Let me take 30 minutes and tell you why I don't believe in oxygen, okay? And what Bonson does, it's just absolutely brilliant. He says, so many of the things about our world that we depend on to have arguments about the existence of God, like laws of logic, the uniformity of nature, the fact that minds can connect to reality and, and summarize them, the fact that we have an ethical values about right and wrong. All of these things are immaterial. They're, they cannot be the result of naturalistic processes. Bonson says, in order to argue against God, you need God as a prerequisite for all of the laws of logic that you use to refute him. <gasps> I don't believe in error. And Paul says, exchanging the truth for a lie this is a part of the human condition. When we are holding the beach ball down. Friends, imagine, think with me for just a moment about all of the things that as humans we have said are true that are clearly false. Historically, humans have said there's one race, there's one skin color that's superior to all the others. Think of the horrid, wicked results of that lie. It's clearly a lie, but it was 
claimed to be true. The lie, think of the lie that there was one particular race of humans that was only two-thirds human, therefore it was justified to enslave them. Think of the wickedness of that lie that was presented as a truth. The lie that a baby inside of a, of a mother's womb is not a person and therefore not worthy to be protected under sanctity of life. Something that is obviously false, but that we hear all the time as a statement of truth. And I could go on and on and on and on. And Paul says, all of this is connected. It all flows. So step one, Paul says, you got to get the exchange. Do you see it? Are you becoming a sage? I'm not standing up here just to stimulate you intellectually. I'm trying to create a community of people who are becoming wise to what's happening in our world. Paul says, understand the exchange. But now, look at verse 24. Paul says, you've got to understand the way God responds to this. What is his response? It brings us to one of the most fascinating phrases that Paul uses, and he repeats it three times in verse 24, 26, and 28. It's the phrase, God gave them up, or God gave them over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. The first wave of the wrath of God is God simply giving us what we want. That's, that's what the, the phrase God gave them up, God gave them over means. God says, okay, you're demanding to be the center. You demand to make the exchange. You demand, you, you demand to refuse to recognize that I'm glorious, create substitutes and worship them. God says, I'll let you do it. I'll just, I'll let you go. The analogy I like is, imagine a little infant baby in her mother's arms, and somehow this baby can talk. So immediately my illustration breaks down, all right? But go with me. It's a talking baby, all right? <clears throat> Just whatever. Okay. Tiny baby, like four months old, and the baby looks up into her mother's eyes, and she says, I need you to know that I've had it with the power differential in this relationship. I've had it. I've had it with you calling the shots, determining when I nurse, when I go to bed, when I get a fresh diaper, I've had it, all right? I demand that you set me free to complete autonomy. I am now the ruler of my domain. And the mother could say, okay. And imagine the outcome of something like that. Imagine the impact. Paul simply says, there's a fairness to the way God responds. By the way, I had a gentleman come up last week and he came up and he said, he grabbed me. And I like it when people do this, especially if they're going to talk about theology, all right? If you're going to talk about something dumb, don't grab me. But if you want to talk theology, grab me. He goes, wait a minute, you started to talk about wrath, but I thought the Bible teaches that we're living in the age of grace, the wrath of God is to come, right? There's a future wrath. And you know what I said to him? I said, you know what? You're exactly right. The Bible does say that there is a day of wrath coming that's ultimate, final, the final true wrath of God that will be poured out. And when that day comes, I want to be in Christ. But what Paul does in this is Paul says, but there's sort of like a, there's an immediate 
ongoing form of God's wrath that we, that we see in the here and now. And it's simply this. God says, you want to be self-determining? You want to run the show? You want to pretend that I don't exist? Have at it. Go for it. And see how that goes. And what Paul does now in the rest of this argument in chapter one is he says, now let me explain to you what happens in human societies when we remove God from the center. All forms of harmful behavior and debauchery and wickedness ensue. But the point is the believer, the believer should, or the, the person hearing this should say, God, I can't believe how mean you are. This is not fair. How could you possibly be this mean to humans? And God's saying, I just gave you what you asked for. I just let you go and do what you think you want to do. Now, all of this leads Paul to a discussion about human sexuality. And specifically, it leads Paul to an explanation for why same-sex sexual activity falls outside of God's will for human beings. And that is what Paul says in verses 26 and 27. So we just look at your Bible with me. Verses 26 and 27 entail the longest discussion of homosexuality in the Bible. And what I'm going to do is, all I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read the verses to you, and then I'm going to make a couple of comments before we begin to unpack them. But here's what Paul says. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, here's what I want to do right now in this moment. Please give me your undivided attention. A couple things that need to be said. The very first thing that I want you to realize is that Paul does actually, he does not first talk about homosexuality. This is not his primary concern. I'm going to argue later that Paul doesn't even necessarily set out to give a long discussion on Christian sexual ethic. But the thing that Paul addresses first is sexual immorality in general. Do you remember this? Look at verse 24. I want to say something really obvious. Verse 24 comes before verse 26. Do I need to explain that anymore? Okay, no. Verse 24 is first in the argument. And what Paul says in verse 24 is, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. The point is, before Paul says anything about homosexuality, first he talks about sexual immorality in general. That would be a umbrella term for any kind of sexual activity outside of God's plan within marriage. Adultery, rape, pornography, go down the list, all the things. The point is, 
of all of this is that for those of us who are heterosexual, let's make sure that we don't read Romans 1 with a massive log sticking out of our eye. Because every single human being can find themselves in that verse before I have to look anywhere else. What's more, if you keep reading in Romans, it gets even worse. And Paul lists a whole other catalog of things. Just look at verse 29, where he talks about malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders. And I lead down that wrist and I go, Adam McMurray, check, 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 check. So there's no room for self-righteousness, arrogance, looking at someone else to look down on them. There's no place for that in a study of Romans or in a person who loves the gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone comes to Romans 1, just looking for ammunition for their side of, the, of a debate about something, Paul would say, I have no place for you. That's not what I'm about. Romans 1 is not my text proof for what I want to argue about something. That's not the point. If people are tuning in to my series of teaching right now to just find ammunition for arguments, that's just not the kind of church that we are. That's not the people Jesus is forming. If people are tuning in to try to figure out, oh, is this church properly conservative or is this church properly progressive or whatever I think it should be, I would just kindly say, please tune out because that's not the kind of church Jesus is forming. And it's not even the point of this passage. So what I want to do right now is I'm just going to, all I'm going to do this morning, I'm just going to unpack for you the flow of Paul's logic. What is, the, what is the content of his statements? What's the argument? And here's why I'm going to start there. I'm just going to evaluate the argument because here's the thing. We can't agree or disagree or debate or fight or, or apply or even begin to interpret if we don't actually just understand the argument of the text. And the problem is the text is so delicate that people often don't want to talk about it, so we never talk about it. So will you just give me your permission to break down the flow of the argument? And then at the end, I'm going to say a couple other things, okay? And you might want to write some of these down. The first observation is that Paul now uses the language of exchange again for the third time. Did you see this? Verse 26, he talks about an exchange. The exchange of natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So you say, well, why does Paul mention homosexuality in the first place? Like, why even talk about this? And the point is because it flows in his argument. Homosexuality is the most immediate example for Paul of an exchange. It's like Paul speaking of a vertical exchange where we trade something and he goes, I need an illustration. And he says, here's an illustration, a horizontal exchange that happens. The exchange of, 
a natural for an unnatural sexual function corresponds with the exchange of the truth that of God that's been revealed for the lie of idolatrous worship. When people trade away God, the God of creation for other gods, they also begin to trade away the design of God's creation for a parody of that design. And that's all I'm, I'm just showing you is his logic. He goes, okay, exchange. I'm trying to illustrate exchange. And I do know that sexuality, humans have worshiped sexuality. And here's one of the most immediate ways to illustrate the exchange. Observation number two, the expression relations in verse 26. You see that in your Bible in ESV. That's a circumlocution, which means it's a polite way to talk about something without saying it explicitly. And when we say the word relations, we know what we mean by that. There was a certain president that said, I did not have relations with that woman. You all know what he meant. We're talking about sexual intercourse. That's what that Greek word relations describes. Number three, explanations vary about why Paul chooses to talk first about women and then men. Did you notice that? Verse 26, he starts with women. And then in 27, he talks about men. And here's what I think is happening. Singling out women puts the focus on something that women were doing apart from men. So this is a, this is a conversation about same-sex sexual activity. Paul says, first I'm going to talk about it from the standpoint of the sex of women, same-sex women engaging in sexual activity. And then he makes a very clear break, and then in verse 27 he says... And it also happens with the other sex. But all this serves to eliminate the possibility that Paul was only addressing, first of all, men, but also there's some people have argued that Paul was only addressing male domination sex. So in Roman and Greek culture, it was common at times for there to be a form of sex that was about male domination. The word we would use for that is pederasty, and it's a form of rape, but it's a form of rape where a more powerful, older male forces a younger male into a subservient role. It was obviously quite wicked. The point is, and by the way, um, a couple things I'll tell you about. Um, here's a book that I have used if you're looking for something to read. There, there are books that are written that allow people who come down on a different side of a debate to present their view and argue for it. This is one of them, Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church. It has four contributing authors. Two of them are affirming. That just is a word that means they, they believe there's room in the Bible for same-sex committed monogamous relationships. And then two of the authors are, represent the historic Christian view. Some people use the word non-affirming. I don't like that word very much because... I feel like you can be non-affirming and affirm a lot of things about human beings and life and sexuality. But my point in this is that all of the authors in this book say it's not possible that Paul's only talking about pederasty in this verse. So Bill Loader, who's one of the affirming guys, he says... Here the focus is not pederasty or the exploitation of one by another, but mutual passion, what we would call consensual adult 
homosexual acts. One more observation. Twice in this passage, Paul uses the Greek adjective physikos, which is where we get our word natural. You see it there in verse 26. And once he uses the phrase paraphysin, which means against nature or unnatural. So natural, natural, unnatural. And, there's, and so the question is, well, why is, why is Paul using that language? Natural and unnatural, what's Paul doing? Some have suggested that unnatural refers to something that would be natural to the people themselves. Paul might have been talking about heterosexual people engaging in homosexual activity and thereby going against their natural orientation. And a lot of people have argued for that. And the point would be that Paul's not there, he's not condemning all homosexual activity as much as he's condemning activity by heterosexuals who are clearly heterosexuals engaging in something like this. But again, that's very problematic. Um, um, a pastor from the UK who is same-sex attracted, who has chosen to follow in the way of Jesus, he, he writes against that view. His name's Sam Alberry. He's written a couple books. He says, attractive as this may be, this view cannot be supported by the text. The words for natural and against nature do not subscribe the subjective experience of what persons feel. Instead, they refer to the fixed way of things in creation. And by the way, if you studied the words natural and unnatural, even in Greek literature, you'd find atheists, agnostics, philosophers of all kinds, Plato, Socrates, you name it, using natural, unnatural in this way. The idea is that the nature that Paul says homosexual behavior contradicts is God's purpose revealed in creation and reiterated throughout scripture. There's a natural character to heterosexual intercourse that appears obvious from the physical anatomy of male and female. Paul considers same-sex sexual intercourse to be obviously contrary to nature in that it attempts to use the human body in a way contrary to natural design. Not to mention that it cannot accomplish anything in terms of procreation. So same-sex intercourse requires, in the case of women, for one of them to assume in some artificial way the male anatomy. And in the case of men, it assumes for one of them to assume in some artificial way the female anatomy. And Paul would say, this is why I'm using the words natural and, un and against nature. And in the Greek, what happens is you'll notice, and we're going to come back in, in the next two weeks, and I'm going to draw on this a little bit more. Paul goes out of his way to use the words male and female in the Greek. And that is clearly a hyperlink back to Genesis chapter one, where God created human beings, male and female, and where God describes marriage. So Romans one, the reader is going hyperlink, Genesis one, Genesis one, something's happening here. And at River West, we hold this view. We hold what might be called the historically Christian view of sexuality 
and marriage. But what I want to say to you is, friends, can you please listen to what I'm about to say to you? That is not even close to beginning to say everything that ought to be said about this conversation. Because this conversation is delicate and it's about human beings. It's about people. I even hesitated when I was writing this sermon to take time to just approach the text logically. Although I think that's ultimately the right starting point, here's the problem. What I'm doing is I'm having some sort of distanced logical conversation about an issue for which there are human beings who experience untold pain. They've been hurt, they've been wounded, they've been shamed, they have been, you know, made to feel like outcasts. Heaven forbid that we would ever just approach this from some detached theological sense. We need to do that, yes, but that's, that's just where we start. We don't end there. I have another concern, and that concern is people in our church who are carrying around attractions and experiences, and they're scared to death to talk to somebody about it. I have a concern about moms and dads and neighbors and friends who have relationships with people that you love and you know this is for them a source of great pain. I have a concern about the fact that in the church, it seems so difficult to talk about this. Why is it so difficult to have this conversation? Next Sunday, I need you to come back. So remember, I said to you, I cannot have this conversation in one Sunday. I know that there are some who will say, I'm out of here. Please, please do not do that. Stay with me. I can't talk about something complicated and do it in one sermon. I probably should take 20 sermons to do this. And what I need to do next Sunday is I need to ask the question, why has it become so difficult in the church to talk about sexuality? And next Sunday, when you come back, I'm gonna give you five words. The five words that describe why I think it's become almost impossible to even have this conversation without people just putting on their boxing gloves or weeping internally or wanting to run for the exit. And I want us to look at those because it's going to be a way for our church to move forward into greater maturity, greater humility, greater grace as the people of Jesus. I need you to come back for three more Sundays. Last Sunday, I made an agreement with you. I'm going to be humble, direct, precise. I'm going to teach with integrity. I'm not going to overstate or understate. And what I require of you is that you come with an open mind and a humble heart and you give me a chance to explain to you what I think is happening. So come back. I'm going to close with one quote from Sam Alberry. Here's my final concern. And I can't say it better than this pastor from the UK who lives with same-sex attraction. But listen to what he said. I love this. He said, it's important to recognize that Paul is talking in Romans at a societal level 
not necessarily in terms of individuals. Now listen, Paul's talking about society. He's describing what happens to culture as a whole rather than necessarily focusing on particular people. Now, individuals are a part of this, but here's his point. The presence of same-sex desire in some of us is not an indication that we've turned from God more than others or have somehow been given over by God further to sin more than others. Sam says there are people who love God and they wrestle with sexual sexual desire, sexual attraction, and they read Romans 1 and they say, this isn't a description of me. I love, I'm trying to follow God and I feel like I'm being cast into this group that's being demonized. Heaven forbid that we make anyone ever feel that way. He says there's a parallel with suffering. The presence of particular suffering in someone's life does not mean they've sinned more than someone else. Rather, the presence of suffering anywhere is an indication that we live in a broken world. And for some reason, one person suffers more at a given moment than another. And Sam says this is a good way to think about this. So you say, Pastor, well, then what, what do I need to do right now in this moment? I'll tell you what you need to do right now in this moment. Start by finding yourself in Romans 1. Where am I? And by the way, it should not be hard to find yourself there. <laughs> Just read to the end of the chapter and you'll find a word that describes where you're at right now. Find yourself in Romans 1 and then fall on your knees at the foot of the cross and say, God, woe is me. And woe to me if I were to ever look across the room or across the city or across the political aisle or, and look down on someone else when I have 14 words in Romans 1 that describe my condition before a holy God. I need the gospel. I need the gospel. Will you bow your heads with me as I pray about that? Father, we want to say thank you for what we're about to do together. Our worship, yes. And our moment of communion, the Lord's Supper. When we remember the righteousness of God revealed. An astounding gift. Jesus, you lived the life we could never live. We were supposed to live it. We are required to live it, a perfect righteous life in order to be in relationship with a perfect righteous God. But we failed and you came to live that life in our place, gifting us your record of righteousness and taking upon your bleeding brow the full brunt of our sin and wickedness. We're not just eating a cracker or drinking juice. We're consuming the meal of your perfect sacrifice in our place. And so we say thank you. Help us to find our place in the story of Romans 1. We pray, Jesus, and we ask it in your name. Amen.